Chapter 18 of A Mating in the Wilds by Otwell Binns. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Dead Girl. Ah, dat better, by gar. I think it was New Jerusalem for you this time. The words penetrated Stane's consciousness as he opened his eyes and were followed by others which he obeyed instinctively. Take another drink. The whiskey will wake you proper. He gulped from the tin pannikin which was held to his lips and coughed as the raw, potent spirit burned his throat. Then he sat up and looked at the man who was befriending him. Who, who are you? he asked weakly. I am Jean Bernard. I come up ze lake and hear shots and I see my cabin blaze like hell. I think something very badly wrong and I turn to the woods. Then I see you rush out, and I hear you shoot as you run. I see that big man struggle with you. I see him killed by another who go down. I'll see. And when ze man with ze axe make for you, I begin to shoot. I am in ze wood, and ze devils, they do not see me, and I pick off un, deux, trois. They are there still after the others grow afraid and run like caribou with the wolves at their heels it is fine sport and i shoot as they ran and presently i am left alone i shovel snow with my snowshoe on my burning cabin for i love that petite cabin like a child and then i think i take a look at you you are not dead so i pour hot whiskey in your mouth and you return from the happy hunting grounds. There you have the whole narrative. But Helen, cried Stane, looking round, where? I not see any miss, answered the trapper. I did not know there was. Then they have taken her, exclaimed Stane, staggering to his feet and looking round. Jean Bernard also looked round. Except for the figures lying prone in the snow, they were quite alone. They must have done, he said, if there were a miss. He looked at Stane as if he doubted his sanity, and Stane reassured him. Oh, I have not gone mad, Bernard. There was a white girl with me in your cabin, Miss Yardley. You must have heard. Miss Yardley? She is here? cried the trapper in sudden excitement. She was here, corrected Stane. I think she has been carried off. We must follow. We, oui, we, oui, replied Bernard. I have heard of her, the factor at Fort Malsum. He tell me to keep a bright lookout. There is a reward. We must get her, interrupted Stane. You must help me, and I will double the reward. You understand? Oh, I understand, monsieur. This girl, she is much to you. She is all the world to me. Then we go, monsieur, but first we feed and rest the dogs. We travel quick after, who comprends? I will make a meal, and your head it will recover. Then we travel like the wind. The trapper made his way into the still smoldering hut, and began to busy himself with preparations, while Stane looked round again. The darkness and the figures lying in the snow gave the scene an indescribable air of desolation, and for a moment he stood without moving. Then, as something occurred to him, 
he began to walk towards the place where he had been struck down. Three figures lay there, huddled grotesquely in the snow, and to one of them he owed his life. Which of them was it? Two of the dead lay with their faces in the snow, but the third was on its back, face upward to the sky. He stood and looked into the face. It was that of the man whom he had grappled, and who had been struck down with the knife that he had expected to strike himself. He looked at the other two. An axe lay close to the hand of one, and he had no doubt that that one was the man who would have slain him. The third one was his savior. He looked again, and as he noted the dress, a cold fear gripped his heart, for it was the dress of a woman. He fell on his knees and turned the body over. Then he bent over the face. As he did so, he started back, and a sharp cry came from his lips. The cry brought Jean Bernard from the hut at a run. "'What is it, monsieur?' he asked, as he reached Stane, who knelt there as if turned to stone. "'It is a dead girl,' answered Stane brokenly, a girl who gave her life for mine. The trapper bent over the prostrate form. Then he also cried out, "'Miss Godeed!' "'Yes, Miss Godeed. I did not know it was she.' She killed one of them with her knife, and she was slain by the other. Whom I kill with the bullet? For a moment Jean Bernard said no more, but when he spoke again there was a choking sound in his voice. I am glad I kill that man. If I had not done so, I follow him across the world till it was done. Something like a sob checked his utterance. Ah, monsieur, I love that girl. I say to myself, all the way from good hope that i will marry her and i have the price i pay her father on the sledge i see her last winter but i not know den how it was with me but when i go away my heart cry out for her and my mind is made up and now she is dead i never think of that i think of only the happy years that we have together he dropped suddenly in the snow and bent over the face in its frozen beauty, sobbing as only a strong man can. He bent lower and kissed the ice-cold lips, while Stane staggered to his feet and moved away. He could not endure to look on Jean Bernard's grief. As he stood staring into the darkness of the wood, he had a flashing memory of the Indian girl's face as she had whisperingly asked him if he could not leave Helen. The very note in her voice sounded in his ears, and he knew what it was no harm for him to know then, that this child of the wilderness had given him her love, unsought. She had loved him, and she had died for him, while a man who had loved her now wept over her poor body. The tragedy of it all shook him, and the irony of Jean Bernard's grief was almost beyond endurance. A great humility filled his heart, and while he acquitted himself of blame, he regretted deeply his vehemence of repudiation. All her words came back to him in a flood. She must have guessed that he loved Helen, yet, in the greatness of her love, she had risked her life without hope, and died for him without shrinking. He began to walk to and fro, instinctively fighting the cold. 
with all his mind absorbed in Miskodeed's little tragedy, but presently the thought of Helen came to him, and he walked quickly to where Jean Bernard still knelt in the snow. The trapper's face was hidden in his mittened hands. For a moment Stane hesitated. Then he placed a hand on the man's shoulder. Jean Bernard, he said quietly, there is work to do. Bernard rose slowly to his feet, and in the little light reflected from the snow, Stane read the grief of the man's heart in his face. Oh, monsieur, we must bury her, my petite Miss Godeed. That, yes, but there is other work. I could not endure to think that wolves get her. I will help you, Jean, and then you will help me. No, monsieur, help I do not need. I will myself do the last duty for my pavour, Miss Godeed, my hands that would have held and fondled her. They shall prepare her, and I that would have died for her, I shall bury her. You, monsieur, shall say the prayer, for I have not the religion, but— Call me when you are ready, interrupted Stane, and turned away, finding the situation intolerably poignant. He went to the hut and busied himself with the meal which the trapper had been preparing, and presently Jean Bernard called him. The man had swathed the dead girl in a blanket, and had bent the tops of a couple of small spruce, growing close together, almost to the ground, holding them in position with a sled thong. To the trees he had lashed the corpse, and he was standing by with a knife in his hand. The ground, he said in a steady voice, is too frozen to dig. We bury Muskodeed in the air, and when the spring winds blow and the grounds grow soft again, I dig a grave. Now if monsieur is ready, we will have the words of religion. Stane almost choked at the poignant irony of the thing, then shaped his lips to the great words that would have been strange if not unmeaning to the dead girl. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. For the comfort of the man who stood by knife in hand, he recited every word that he could remember, and when he reached the words, We therefore commit her body to the grave, the keen knife severed the moose-hide thong, and the trees, released, bent back, carrying the girl's body to its windy sepulchre, amid a shower of snow that scattered from the neighboring trees. Stane pronounced the benediction, waited a few moments, then again put a hand on the other's shoulder. Bernard, we have done what we can for the dead. Now we must think of the living. Oui, monsieur. You must eat. I have prepared a meal, and when you have eaten and the dogs are ready, we must start on the trail of Miss Yardley. Oui, monsieur. They returned to the hut together, and noting that some of the outer logs were still smoldering, the trapper shoveled snow against them with his snowshoes. Then they entered. The cabin was not so badly burned as Stane had expected to find it. The bunk had been burned out but the inner wall of the cabin had scarcely caught, and the place was still tenable. Bernard blocked the window, 
and they sat down to eat. For a time, the meal progressed in silence, Stane deliberately refraining from speech out of consideration for the feelings of his companion. Though from time to time, glancing at him, he caught an expression of perplexity on the trapper's face. Suddenly, Bernard spoke. But, monsieur, I do not understand it. You have no quarrel with the tribe? None, answered Stane, and then told him the facts communicated to him by Miskodeed. Ah, then, monsieur, there is a white man at the back of things. That chipmunk, he is no good, but what you call a rotter. But he not dared do this thing himself. That is how I feel, answered Stane, but how we are to get at the truth of the matter I do not know. We will go to the encampment. We will make Chief George tell the truth. If we can, commented Stane dubiously. As you say, if we can. But something's we will learn, monsieur, that is certain. I hope so, Jean. An hour afterwards they started, following the trail up the lake left by the fugitives. A broadly marked trail which revealed that a sledge had been used, for there were marks of the runners both coming and going. As they started, the trapper pointed this out. You see, monsieur, they come prepared. They know that your Helen, she will not walk. Therefore, they bring the sled and lash her thereto. Yes, that seems likely, agreed Stane, his heart aflame with wrath at the thought of the possible indignities to which the girl might have been subjected. In silence they traveled up the lake, and after a time reached the place where the moose-hide tepees lifted their shadowy forms against the background of snow and trees. The camp was dark and silent as a place of the dead. For a moment the thought that the whole tribe had moved away, deserting their tents held Stane's mind, but it was dispelled by the whisper of Jean Bernard. Do you stay here with the dogs, monsieur? Will I go drag out Chief George? Have the rifle ready, and if there is trouble, be prompt at the shooting. Who comprends? Yes, answered Stane. If there is trouble, I will not hesitate. He stood with the rifle ready, watching Bernard's progress across the snow. He saw him reach the chief's teepee and throw open the moose-hide flap, then disappeared inside. He waited for what seemed an intolerable time, and once heard a rustle from the nearest teepee, and divined that in spite of the stillness of the camp, quick eyes were watching the doings of his companion and himself. Then he caught a coughing grunt, and out of the teepee which the trapper had entered emerged two forms the first bent and shambling, the other that of Jean Bernard. They picked their way, walking close together between the moose-hide tents, and as they drew near the sledge, Stane saw that the shambling form was that of Chief George, and that he walked with the muzzle of the trapper's pistol in the small of his back. We will go forwards up the lake a little way, monsieur, out of arrow-shot. Then Chief George he will talk or die. They marched up the lake five hundred yards or more, the camp behind them maintaining the silence of the dead, 
Then Bernard halted. Now, he said, we will talk. Pointing his pistol at the Indian and speaking in the patois of the tribe, he addressed him. What means the attack upon my cabin? I know nothing, mumbled the Indian, shaking with fear or cold. It was Chickmunk, my sister's son, who led the young men away. So, but thou hast seen the rifles and the burning water, the blankets, the tea, and the molasses, which are the price to be paid. I know thou hast seen them. At the words, the chief started a little. Then he made a mumbling admission. Yes, I have seen them. They are a great price. But who pays? I do not know. A white man, that is all I know. The rest is known to Chickmunk alone. Bernard considered the answer for a moment, and entertaining no doubt that it was a true one, wasted no further time in that direction. Whither has the white maiden been carried? Chief George waved his hand to the east. Through the woods, to the lake of Little Moose, there to meet the man who pays the price. These words are the words of truth, asked the trapper, harshly, if thou liest. Wherefore should I lie? since so much is already known to thee, interrupted the Indian. It would be unwise, agreed Bernard, and then asked, What is to be done to the white girl by the man who pays the price? I know not. Belike he will take her for his squaw. Or wherefore should he pay so great a price? Bernard looked at Stane. There is nothing more that he can tell. I am sure of that, and we waste time. Yes, let him go. The trapper nodded, and then addressed the Indian once more. Thou wilt go back to thy lodge now, but this is not the end. For the evil that has been done, the price will have to be paid. Later the men of the law, the riders of the plains, will come, and thee they will take. It is Chickmunk, my sister's son, who planned. But it is thee they will take for punishment and Chickmunk also. Now go. Chief George waited for no second bidding, but began to shamble off across the snow towards his encampment. The two men watched him go in silence for a little time, and then Stane spoke. This lake of the Little Moose, where is it? About sixteen miles to the east. It is known to me, a little lake, desolate as hell, in the midst of hills. We will go there, and find this white man and Miss Yardley. We must make speed, or the man may have gone, responded Stane. We, I know, we travel through the night. There be two ways thither, the one through the woods, and the other between the hills. The way of the woods is the most easy, but that of the hills is shorter. We will take that, and maybe we give Chickmunk and his white man one surprise. Under the light of the stars and helped by the occasional flashing light of the aurora, they traveled up the lake for some distance. Then, leaving its surface, they turned abruptly eastward, following an unbroken trail through a country which began rapidly to alter in character. The great woods thinned out, and the way they followed took an upward swing, while a steady wind with the knife-edge cold of the north began to blow in their faces. 
staying at the gee pole of the sledge, bent his head before the sharp particles of ice-like snow that it brought with it, and grew anxious lest they should be the vanguard of a storm. But looking up he saw the stars clear overhead, and guessing that the particles came from the trees and the high ground on either side of them, his fears left him. Then a new and very real trouble assailed him. He began to have cramps in the calves of his legs, and it seemed as if his muscles were tying themselves into knots. Sharp pains in the groin made it a torture to lift his feet above the level of the snow, and once or twice he could have groaned with pain. But he set his teeth grimly and endured it in silence, thinking of the girl moving somewhere ahead in the hands of a lawless and ruthless man. He knew that the torture he was suffering was what was known among the voyagers as Mal de Roquette, induced by a considerable tramp on snowshoes after a long spell of inactivity, and there was no relief from it, until it should gradually pass away of its own accord. The trail was not an easy one, and the dogs whined as they bent to the collars, but Jean Bernard, with a frame of iron, and with muscles like steel springs, marched steadily on, for what the stain seemed ours. Then in the shelter of a cliff, crowned with trees, he called a halt. We rest here, he said, and wait for the daylight. Then we look down on the lake of the Little Moose. We make fire behind the rock. Without much ado, he slipped the harness from the dogs and fed them while Stane collected wood for a fire, which was made as an Indian makes his fire, small and round, and which, built behind a mass of rock, was hidden from anyone on the lake side of the trail. Then a meal was prepared, of which both partook heartily, and over the pipes they sat to await the dawn. After a little while Stane, in spite of his consuming anxiety for Helen, under the genial warmth of the fire, and the fatigue induced by the strenuous march, began to nod, and at last fell sound asleep. But Jean Bernard watched through the night, a look of hopelessness shadowing his kindly face. End of chapter 18